The era of big government for Democrats is over again. And that's actually a good thing. I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're on YouTube, on the Blue Amp channel, and of course, available as an audio pod wherever you get your podcasts. It's really delightful to have the former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper. You were last with us, David, two years ago to talk about your book, Laboratories of Autocracy, which was chilling. I would say that it most fell into the genre of horror. You outlined the problem that we're going through as a country and how much of it we don't see because it's hidden at a level of government that we don't talk about as much. And now you are back, literally hot off the presses. Your new book is out today, Saving Democracy. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to be back with you. I Absolutely. Think this, this recent one is probably your most important book ever. So let's just remind people who may not have heard or read the earlier book, Laboratories of Autocracy was incredibly important. I would say it was like the jab in the one-two punch that you're providing here. It outlined the problem. It didn't quite as much outline the solution, but just remind people, what is the problem that we're dealing yeah, with? So the problem is, and it gets to your broader, what you opened with, we are so focused on Washington, D.C. We have not seen what the other side has seen for a long time, which is that the democracy of this country and most of the issues dealt with in politics in this country run through state and state houses. And that has allowed, because one side has seen that and the other hasn't, that has allowed one side to come up with, basically it's the book title, a laboratories of autocracy model of how to push through a right-wing agenda onto all of this country. Not where people are watching in Washington, where there's so many obstacles, they can't even get it done for the most part. They can do tax cuts and some other things, but they haven't banned abortion nationally in Washington. They run it through these unaccountable and gerrymandered state houses until we break out of the mindset that, oh, they just care about federal office like we do. No, they actually, the front line of their attack on democracy are these state houses in other positions at that level that support that state house work. That's their front line. And until we go to where that battle is and fight back there, we can win federal races and feel like we're winning, but we're not winning because their front line where they are always on offense are these state houses I want big federal stuff too when it's possible, but with the filibuster and everything else, it's getting next to impossible. But the other thing, the federal myopia is totally disempowering to almost everybody because they don't feel like they can't do anything about it. Exactly. So once you shift the focus and say so much of these issues are determined in states, it's also empowering, which is why the book is explaining there's so many things you could be doing to help. Once you realize it's not only about a few swing seats in Congress. And here's the, and I don't say this to criticize people. It's just the reality that we all need to face up to. Not only are they always playing offense, we're rarely playing offense. And in many of these places, we're not even playing defense. You know, whether it's the people who passed abortion bans or the Tennessee Republicans, half these people aren't even contested. They're literally attacking democracy. They're pushing laws that are toxic and they aren't even being challenged in the next election. Of course, they're going to keep doing it. The right. only incentive in their life in politics is to be more extreme. If they're moderate, they lose. If they're extreme, they win. Half the reason for that is we're not in the game. And so, yeah, we have. And so what's interesting, to, to get to the transition to this current book, you hinted at it. The first book does go through 30 solutions, but it's pretty late in the book. And I had a lot of readers say to me what you were saying hey, David, I love the book, but man, it was so painful. I kept skipping to the end because I needed to know what to do about it. And I heard it so much. I was like, you know what? I need to write a new book that skips to the end. And the, this right. book, and we'll talk about it, 
is basically say, okay, there's a lot of darkness in the first book. There's a lot of darkness in the world we better understand. But once you confront that darkness, here is an entire game plan that you could be a part of personally to help go on offense in the right way. And that's, the, that's why I went from one to the next book. And we had Amanda Littman, who's the head of Run for Something, which tries to encourage progressives to run for local offices. She told us that 70% of local races go uncontested. Uncontested. Yeah. This is the level at which much of government that people experience in their day-to-day -day lives happens. The next level up, which accounts for a whopping percentage of the rest of it, is the state house races. And that's really where you focus. And your first book, Laboratories of Autocracy, really was like a Moneyball moment, I think, for politics. It's like the movie or the book Moneyball, where there's this sudden realization of, hey, you know what? Instead of paying the big money for start, we can actually look at this undervalued segment of the market. What, what are we about here? We're about winning. In order to get wins, you need to get runs in baseball. By the way, I hate baseball, so I hate making a baseball metaphor, but it really applies here. You got to get runs. We don't need to pay millions and millions of dollars for one big star. What we need to do is pay for undervalued players. We'll get just as many runs or more, and we'll be more successful. That's what you were pointing out. Correct. And the most shocking thing in our earlier interview is you pointed out that the Koch brothers figured out back in 2010, well, a little bit before. Even that, before, yeah. Even before that, that for a $30 million investment, $30 million, which is a raindrop in the flood of money that goes into our elections, they could buy all the statehouse majorities they wanted in America. It is absolutely shocking that they had that insight and we didn't. So what's the next step there? How do you make the transition from, okay, we get the problem. Where do we start? in terms of doing something about it. I try and walk through it. So the whole goal of the book is to give every single person who, as we were saying a couple minutes ago, the federal model, the federal mindset is so disempowering to almost every American who doesn't happen to live in a swing state, or even if they do, they think that's for Jack Smith to deal with, or that's for John Fetterman. We're not part of that. So we can't do anything. And so the main thrust of the book is to say, actually, the battle is in your backyard. So there's so much you can do right now that we're probably not doing, which is why the other side's winning. But before we get to that, I do think the most important thing is the frame shift to see America's political battle is a battle for democracy itself. It's not just about federal elections every two years. It's democracy itself, as it's always been. This is not new. And that's a battle that starts at the state level. Once you have seen that, that should shape everything we do. And I'll go through, one, it's a long battle, it never stops. It's not about cycle by cycle. Two, you better be fighting in all 50 states. Every state should be a democracy. Just because it happens to not be a federal swing state doesn't mean we should allow it to fester as some anti-democratic hell that a lot of these states are going through. That's when you realize the enormous damage it's done. When we leave dozens of districts in Tennessee or Ohio or Georgia uncontested, these places are becoming bastions of extremism because the only people in the conversation are the extremists because we leave the conversation, we're worried about swing areas. It's bigger than Donald Trump. We are making this too much about Trump when this began before Trump, as you mentioned. The Koch brothers didn't need to read my first book. They knew it. They've been taking advantage of it for years. So when we make it about only Trump, we really are blinding ourselves to the depth of it and we're frankly giving cover to people who are doing really bad things about democracy that don't feel or sound like Donald Trump. There are all sorts of very specific things I try and break down 
to individual readers or organizations or nonprofits or candidates or parties, what they could all be doing to accomplish all those goals. Even if your state didn't turn blue that year, it's still a win for democracy. Actually, before we get to some of the prescriptions here, which I want to tease, I want you to give us a taste ultimately in this show, but I do want people to read the book. We're not going to give away the story on this. I do think that larger frame is important because you've hit on a critical point. I worked in Congress for a decade, and there was a project underway during Nancy Pelosi's first stint as speaker to figure out why the hell we were losing rural areas so badly. And that effort seems quaint these days because you identified this. You were the Ohio Democratic Party chairman, and you said on this show that in order for Biden to have a chance in Ohio in 2020, he just had to turn the margin in the rural areas from 80-20 to 70-30. Could we get, could we please just get to 70-30? We had to make it not such a painful crush. And people in the Democratic Party have been throwing up their hands around, well, okay, how do we do that? Like, how do we make it like a little bit less toxic to be a Democrat in some of this Trump country? And it does have to start with people feeling some kind of identification with the Democratic Party. And there are flashing yellow signs about this. Roy Teixeira, the longtime political scientist, demographer for the party, just wrote a piece where he said only 31% of adult Gen Zers and 27% of millennials actually identify as Democrats. Now, they may be Democrat leaning in their voting behavior. They don't want to call themselves Democrats. Shouldn't that freak us out? And we just had the pollsters, Alex Ivey and Mario Broussard from Global Strategy Group, who are experts on the African-American voter experience, talking about the exact same dynamic among the core of the party, Black voters. And so we're having this deep brand problem where people are not engaged. And it sounds to me like the real insight that you're bringing here is this, your approach fixes our big mega problem as a party, which is you want people to get engaged again in meaningful ways. And they can really only do that on the state and local level at a time that they can't meaningfully do it at the federal level. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah. And I think to your point about the rural part in particular, and I'm not an area where this is happening, so I, but I just project onto it. Imagine if you showed up every two years for 20 years and the only choice on your ballot was the Republican incumbent. And the only time you hear about Democrats is Fox News is on in the local restaurant. And it's, it's Sean Hannity making fun of Joe Biden. That's all you've seen. So yes, that party becomes less and less relevant. And all the horrible things you hear about it from Tucker Carlson feel true. What if instead every two years, there was a, like a retired teacher or a retired football coach who was running and knocked on your door and said, here's what I stand for. And by the way, the reason you're paying a thousand more dollars a year to, for Tommy to play football is because that state house has been attacking public schools for 10 years. But you don't have that. Or did you know that your neighbor, the state rep, is an extremist who forced that 10 year old rape victim to go to another state to get an abortion that she couldn't get here? That's your neighbor that you have been stuck voting for. I'm the alternative. You start doing that all over. And even if that person doesn't win, and this is a really key point. They're bringing some accountability that right now doesn't exist. They are a hero for democracy by running. And right now, one of our big problems is to go back to the Nancy Pelosi task force is we do not have an infrastructure in place that values running everywhere. It just doesn't. And that's why Amanda Littman will tell you about all the empty seats. 
we have an infrastructure that values running in swing areas generally for federal elections. And we basically accept as the cost of that infrastructure, we just don't run these other places. And that's okay because we never win them anyway. That's the default. That default turns out to be doing incredible damage, not just to democracy, but the whole culture of extremism exploding. Because once you're an extremist and you're not facing even an election, a general election, like half of the Tennessee Republican Party, the only thing you fear is the next primary. The only thing you are motivated by is not to be out extreme by someone else. So of course you kick the two Justins out. It's not even a close call. To keep them is the risk in your politics. To get rid of them is the no-brainer in the set of incentives that we create. What do we see right now? We see states that voted for Obama, like Iowa and Indiana, cratering into these extremist bastions. They were blue not that long ago. Missouri, similar path. Tennessee, even, not that long ago. When we choose to not engage in these places, of course they feel disconnected from us. We're not even there. So all they see are the sort of the caricatures of national Democrats. And there's no local variant of that caricature that makes them realize, oh, that I like that teacher. He taught all our kids and me too. That's why I know American history. I may not even vote for him, but I know he's not crazy either. We just aren't in the game enough to even have the beginning of that kind of accountability and balance. And you said something really important. It's almost like the inverse of that old NFL coach rant. You play to win the game. Maybe if you take a super short-term election-by-election view. But what really resonated with me was this idea of maybe we need to look beyond the next election and are we winning or losing in swing areas and recognize the benefits of sometimes even when you lose on the surface, you're actually gaining ground. It's an investment in the long term. For one thing, we're doing absolutely no brand development and maintenance in any of these places because we're literally just not there, not saying anything. And for people who say, well, that sounds like if you've got Democrats in those areas and you're just talking to them and you're preaching to the choir, that doesn't seem useful. It's like, Don't dismiss the value of preaching to the choir. Preachers do it every Sunday. That's right. the whole point is that you continue to message. This is why big national brands, think of the last time you saw a Coke ad. Why do they keep running advertising? Everyone knows who Coca-Cola is. It's because you have to keep maintaining the brand. There is value in that. Right. But then beyond that, and this is, gets to something that you point out really cleverly and with some really interesting stories in your book, is that sometimes it's just about getting enough power to stop the bad stuff. And we've seen this when we've just managed to keep state houses from going to Republican supermajorities, or as you point out in your book, Sometimes you're not able to pass anything, but you can motivate, activate, and embarrass these people into stopping doing the really terrible stuff. T tell us more about that. I give an example. By the way, on the rural stuff, absolutely. And one thing to keep in mind is most of what they're pushing is now really toxic. And if you've messaged it well, like we've seen in Georgia and Texas in the last two months, Rural Republicans say no to the pure voucherization of public schools because they know it would destroy their rural public schools. And rural Republicans vote against that. So there's a lot more. If you're running, there's actually far more issues to talk about. Most Americans in rural or urban Ohio or suburban America, sorry, don't support abortion bans, no exceptions. That's toxic everywhere. So you can run in all these places on issues because they've gotten so over their skis and their worlds of accountability, of unaccountability extremism, giveaways of public goods to the private, that there's actually a lot of material that you can run on everywhere. So 
we have a great group in Ohio that has really been standing up against the censorship efforts. We have an Ohio school board that for the last six months of 2022, it was nonstop anti-LGBTQ every single meeting. And I'll, I'm the first to tell you, no one has any idea what the Ohio School Board is or does for the most part. And so they're kind of like a state house, which is why they do the bad things in these places. This group called Ohioans for Honest Education went to every meeting and they packed the place and it's parents and kids saying, don't use our schools for right-wing extremism. Just teach our kids, please get out of this culture war nonsense. They packed the meetings. These normally anonymous meetings became a big news item every single time. The school board eventually in late November passed a watered down version of what they were trying to do despite those crowds. But guess what happened? There were three seats up for election early November to the House School Board. In all three, the culture warriors lost. This is in a year where Mike DeWine won the governor's race by 26 points. These were not gerrymandered for Democrats, but three public servant-minded, two former public teachers, public school teachers, ran basically saying, you've seen the crazy stuff going on. We just want to get back to the educating of our kids. Two of us were former teachers. We support our public schools. They ran against three people who had nothing to defend but crazy culture war censorship, which, by the way, is overall very unpopular. And all the noise that was made at that state school board by all those wonderful activists helped create an atmosphere where all three of the culture wars lost. And by the way, this is happening local school boards. People didn't want extremists to run elections last November in those swing states. That's why a lot of Secretary of State election deniers lost, and they all lost in swing states, they definitely don't want extremists educating their kids. People trust teachers, they trust librarians. So I guarantee you, if you make a lot of noise at a school board, or you expose a candidate as a book banning, someone who wants to give power to some angry parent down the street to tell your kids what they can learn, you will win if you make noise. Imagine if those meetings had been held in silence, and no one showed up, no one would have known, I guarantee you the three would have won but they lost because of all the noise it was made. I just want to point out that one of the features of the book that I really liked is that you close every chapter with a kind of how-to guide. Here's right. Here are the steps you can take. You, as an individual, the reader of this book, you don't have to be a party activist. You don't have to be David Pepper. You don't have to be the chair of the Ohio Democratic Party. You don't even have to really know what you're doing. And by the way, there are groups, and you point out, yeah. Here are the folks that you can hook up with. Here are the places where you can give your money. Here are the things that you can do to make each of the elements of the plan happen. And it's it's it is a great how to. I'm glad you like that part. I even created a website now where you can download and print out. I call them these footprints. So yeah, at the end of every, it's almost like a worksheet. So if you're reading it and you're like, oh, I got to do this, I'm walking you through how to do it. And of course, my dream is that everyone in the next several months is filling out this worksheet. I try and use these sheets to really show people, because once you start thinking about it in that way, and you start thinking about your own footprint in the world and how influential it could be, it's very eye-opening that there's so much more we could all be doing to lift democracy than we ever think about. And those worksheets are this not so subtle way of saying, once you look at your own life, you will see how many ways you could be saving democracy in your neck of the woods because that's what it's going to take. One, one sobering thing to think about, this is not just optional. We have to do this. The scale of the attack on democracy is enormous. It's billions of dollars from people like the Koch brothers. It's what some of these right-wing officials are doing every single day in office. 
full time, your tax dollars are being spent to suppress your democracy. And I worry the battle for democracy is too much part time. It's people running around doing split the pots to raise money to do little things. We need to figure out how to scale up the battle for democracy so it matches and ultimately can defeat the scale of the attack. And the best way to scale it up is that everyone who cares about democracy, which is the majority of us, figures out how do you scale up in your own life. If um, you go to savedemocracy.us, I created a website where you can download the footprint. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I want to talk about chapter eight. I want to talk about your chapter, Statehouse Advocacy. You are more powerful yeah. than you think. I want to endorse your argument here. I am I've had I had the kind of the crash Davis of staffer careers. I worked in Congress and then I went to AAA. I worked in the state house in New Hampshire. And I always tell people that first of all, the further down the scale you go in politics. Boy, some of these local issues get the most vitriolic. Congress is a breeze compared right. to local level. But also, the level of impact you can have at the state level is so much greater in some ways. You would think, work, I worked for 10 years in Congress. I got some things done as a staffer. I'm very proud of them. They're, I think they're important. I feel great about them. But I will tell you that I was part of the team that put together is meant to look the actual politician, Governor Maggie Hassan. Now, Senator Maggie Hassan gets the credit, right? The state senators actually get the credit for passing Medicaid expansion in New Hampshire. But the fact that tens of thousands of people now have affordable health care is something that takes a ton of work behind the scenes. And I was part of the team that did that. I'm really proud of that. And it's the kind of thing that regular citizens can have a big impact on. I can tell you from my own experience that. As a state house staffer, regular citizens had access to me. They had access to my bosses. They had access to the governor. They could really make a difference. They could hand me materials. And like, it's just a level of access and leverage you do not enjoy on the federal level. And you put a much finer point on that than I can in this show in your chapter. What would you like to nail down for our listeners and our viewers about this aspect of it? Yeah, so one, you'll see that I call up a woman who's been really inspiring to me, who was a former staffer herself, who says what you did. She's, and I started interviewing her and I just said to her, you know what, you're the chapter now, because everything she said was gold. She's you're more powerful than you ever think. Because they don't get as many calls. They don't get as much attention. If you call from their district, if you're in a red district somewhere in Ohio or anywhere, know that when you call your red Republican statehouse member and you say, I'm from your district, that's a very powerful call you're making. That in Congress probably gets put onto some Excel sheet somewhere in that district where they only have one or two staffers answering the phones. It's very significant. So she walked through a lot of things she's learned and she's harnessed this in an organization she started where they have been able to not kill every bill. And sometimes you make noise and you make a difference even if it passes, but she's been able to harness her knowledge to turn, to start up out of the blue, a very effective and robust state house advocacy effort. So the thing I would say to anyone listening about how to do this, if you're part of any nonprofit group that has issues you care about or advocacy group, the way I would start it, I put this in the book. If you have a monthly meeting, add to every agenda state house update and have someone who's got some responsibility with keeping up with what's going on in that state house, be it about your issues or democracy issues, and then begin the process of figuring out, and I go through some of the specifics in the book, how do you lobby that state house? 
and make because if you care about as you as we're both saying almost any issue you care about at the local or the federal level i guarantee you there's a state involvement and it may be the most involved important part of the old conversation that most people don't know so I would simply make the very specific practical change to your monthly group agenda, what's happening at the state house, and ask a state rep from your district or from some other district to give updates sometimes. They'll come because they don't get asked to do as much as people in Congress, et cetera, et cetera, or ask a staffer. But if all of us start doing that, then I think, again, this is something that the Koch brothers and Alec and the right wing and the NRA, they've understood this for 30 years. They've been defending these staffers the whole time. We better be doing the same thing. Not because you're going to accomplish every single goal, but there are many cases where you have underdog victories. Sometimes, as I put, some of these state reps, this is their first political office. They haven't been on TV much. If you're pushing hard enough that the media asks them questions about it, half the time they screw it up. One, One woman who was trying to censor schools got caught on camera basically doing a both sides of the Holocaust teaching that became viral. And all of a sudden the bill died because no one wanted to be part of it. So the push is the key. Sometimes you'll kill it. Sometimes they'll step in it and they'll have to kill themselves. Sometimes you'll make a mess coming in the next election, which at least exposes what's happening. But what do they want? They want silence. And what do the people who are lobbying on the other side want to be the only ones doing it? So wherever you are, whatever the issue is, Add a part of your overall agenda that involves state house advocacy. And in the book, I go through more specifics about some of how you do it and also why it matters so much. I can tell you that as a staffer, I think that there's a universal law. It's like one of these brain misperception, you no know, mental trick type things. Every politician thinks that every single constituent reads every single thing ever put in a newspaper about them and has perfect retention of it. It's incredible. And if you if that's true in Congress, which I assure you it is, it's ultra super duper true on the state level. Yeah. State level legislators really care about letters to the editor. They really care about what's going on. Facebook and Twitter, their they mentions that the leverage you get at the state level is so much more powerful. And it's also where making an investment in relationships matters. I can tell you, I worked with some of what we would consider from a political standpoint, some of the most wackadoo Republicans in the state house. And I got along well with them. And sometimes those relationships, just as a staffer, not even a citizen, sometimes those relationships paid off in being able to make behind the scenes progress. I just want to endorse that this is very real and very full of proof. And you put the proof in the book. I know you've got to get out of here because you have a busy book tour to do. If you wanted to leave our listeners and our viewers with just one thought from this book, one imperative, what would it be? You're on the front lines. Don't let the TV we all watch fool you into thinking that somehow Jack Smith's going to save democracy and whatever he does with Trump or that the next swing Senate race is, although we want to win them, is the end all be all. The front line in their attack on democracy is in your state. It's probably on your state, on your local school board, which is a sobering thing to to realize. But my hope is it also does empower you to think, oh my gosh, I don't have to sit around and just watch TV in frustration. There is so much I could be doing all the time where I live. If you feel that for me saying it, I will say, and the book gives you all the specific ways you can do it. It shows you how within your own, your own world, you're very powerful and there are ways you can do it. And as, as Matt said, there are some great organizations. 
that are building, they're grassroots and they're building. We have to scale them up. And you can help scale them up by joining them. And I put them in the book as well. If you're someone who's just, if you're in a group, it actually gets real easy real quick because the collective becomes very powerful. If you're really not in a political group, I give you examples of groups you could literally join up with to do the same kind of work we're talking about. No matter what it is, your footprint in the world is very powerful. There are so many things you do every day that could be used to lift democracy, but too often we're simply not doing it because we, we don't see that actually would make such a difference. And that's and, the re- literally the reason I wrote the book and wrote it as fast as I could because we have to start now, not October of next year because all we fo- focus on presidential races, net recruiting, candidates, engaging, supporting, fighting censorship, making the school board see that their community does not support censorship. Do it now and keep going. That's literally why I write these books as fast as I can. I feel urgent to get them out there. And this stuff works. This stuff works. And lets people be daunted by the idea of, gosh, it seems like I'm in a Republican area and maybe people aren't going to be with me on this. Just remember that citizen-led voter initiatives were the undercurrent of the 2018 midterms the referenda that regular citizens managed to get onto the ballot were wildly successful and ran like 20 points ahead of Democratic candidates in all kinds of places, Colorado, Missouri, like Republican and purple state places. This stuff works. You have an entire manual. It's actually, that's the subtitle of the book. It's Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American. And you lay out exactly how to make this work. David Pepper, thank you so much for this book, for your work. People can check out the book. They can check out your previous books, like The Voter File, which is over my shoulder here. And uh, best of luck on your book tour. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the conversation and all that you do. 